If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 19 in it. As Ron said earlier, this is Passion Week, or sometimes called Holy Week. It's eight days, this Sunday to next Sunday. And it's to be a reliving of the narrative of Jesus' passion that leads up to the cross and the resurrection next weekend. So for us as a church, especially this year, that means that we have Good Friday, a Good Friday service, we have Easter services, and then this year we have a Lord's Supper service which falls on the middle of the Passion Week. So we have a lot of services in this next week, and you're going to be tempted to maybe just pick one. Pick Good Friday or the Lord's Supper, do one, not the other. Let me encourage you not to do that. Let me encourage you to do both, and to do both not with drudgery, but seeing these things as opportunities, rare opportunities for us as a church to spend more time thinking on and walking ourselves corporately through that drama of Jesus' passion leading up to the cross. We'll stay in Luke for all of this. We'll just jump ahead for the relevant passages and we'll follow the, the narrative of this passion, the history of how this unfolded in the week before Jesus' death. In resurrection. So today we call it Palm Sunday because in the various gospel accounts, Matthew 21, Mark 11, John 12, and then here in Luke 19, it's describing the same thing. Luke doesn't mention the palm branches, but they're in the other three accounts. It's one of few stories to be in all four gospel accounts, so it's important. That's today. Then Wednesday is the Lord's Supper, so we'll celebrate. With Jesus, the Passover, you could say, or his last meal with the disciples, or what we know is the Lord's Supper. Luke chapter 22 talks about that first Lord's Supper. And then Friday, Good Friday, we'll look at Luke 22 and 23, which talk about the, uh, well, the betrayal and the trial, and then eventually the death of our Lord. Sunday, we'll look at Luke 24. These are all on the church blog, if you want to go there and remind yourself during the week of where we are, what we're talking about in each day, where, where we are in Luke's gospel account as we go through this next week together. But as I said, this Sunday is Palm Sunday, or a Sunday to remember Jesus' triumphal entry here in Luke 19. Let's read what it says, starting in verse 28. Jesus has just given a parable on money, and so Luke begins this by saying, After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage in Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, or the donkey, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they'd seen. They shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have hidden, been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a brocade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We'll stop there. We'll see that these verses show that Christ is the king, but he's a different kind of king. A different kind of king than what we might expect. Certainly a different kind of king than what the crowd wanted. The crowd which from one day, Monday, says, Hosanna, here is God in the midst of the people. Here is God coming to us. Here's the Messiah. To just six days later saying, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted a different kind of king. He's different than any other kind of king we could imagine, I think. Let me show you seven ways in which Christ is a different kind of king First, this king is intent to die. It's right there at the beginning of this passage here, verse 28. It's a little foreshadowing of something big that's been growing and growing in in Luke's gospel account, that something is going to happen in Jerusalem. So in verse 28, Luke just says, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Seems simple enough, maybe innocuous. Let's back up and see this theme build. It's worth our time, I think, to see the theme build. Go to chapter 9, and let's just stack these verses on top of another to see what Luke is doing, what Jesus is telling us. Luke picked up on it. Chapter 9, verse 30. Back then, two men were talking with Jesus. They were Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory, speaking of Jesus' departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talking, and they're talking about a departure. And whatever the departure means, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. Tuck that away. Look at chapter 9, verse 51, just this passing phrase. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And then chapter 13, verse 22, Luke tells us he was passing from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Not just meandering, but on his way, teaching, as he heads to Jerusalem. Chapter 17, verse 11, we have another one. He was passing on the way to Jerusalem between Samaria and Galilee. Now, Luke isn't just giving us a travel log, you know, sort of geographic mile markers, directions, which way they're going for those who are into that sort of thing. He's saying something here about Christ's intentions. He's foreshadowing for us the rest of the story. He's telling us what Jesus is up to. Because if we read these things together, the Jerusalem comments with Jesus' promises about his death, we can see that that's what's going on. That's what Jerusalem is all about. Jesus has been explicit that he's going to die. 
And he's been explicit that this is going to be in Jerusalem. So let's notice the things of Jesus telling us that he's going to die, that he's going to suffer. Back up to chapter 9 again. Look at chapter 9, verse 22. The very first time Jesus promised that he was going to suffer and die and be raised. He'll suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. He'll be killed and be raised on the third day. And just to be clear that he's talking about death here, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, even hinting at his own death by cross. Take up his cross and follow me. Then look at verse 44 of chapter 9. Jesus says there, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this. Well, we know, I think, don't we? We know what it means for Jesus to be delivered into the hands of men. They didn't get it. They didn't yet see it. In chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. And then he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. He's referring to himself as the next prophet to be killed in Jerusalem. And so in chapter 17, we saw it last week, verse 24, the Son of Man, as Jesus calls himself, he will be in his day, referring to the second coming, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Suffer. Rejection. And then one more. Luke 18, where again the two foreshadowing themes of Jerusalem and suffering come together. In verse 31, he took the twelve aside. He said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And all things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he'll He'll rise again. So now do you get what Luke means in chapter 19, verse 28, when he just makes this passing statement about Jesus still persisting toward Jerusalem? Those are pregnant words. It has this mission in mind where Jesus is clearly intent to die. Not suicide, but an agreed mission. It's like the language John uses, John the Apostle, where he says that Jesus laid down his life. In John 10, he says it. In John 15, he says it. And then in 1 John 3, he says it again, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Not suicide, but an agreement between father and son. That this is how there would be redemption and glory to the triune God. This would be the culmination, the fulfillment of God's plan. He's going to Jerusalem. And he's going there to die. And no king is like this. No king is so intent to die. Kings may be bold in battle, but no king is intent to die because no king's death does what our king's death does. Romans 5 tells us what his death does. Tells us how amazing it is. Paul says... Hardly will a man die for a righteous man, but maybe even you can find that guy who would swap his life for his buddy's life. If he's a good buddy, maybe he'd swap his life for his friends. But God didn't do that. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners and 
enemies, not friends, not righteous. Christ died for us then. And then he tells us what this means. We've been justified then by his blood, declared righteous, accounted right through the blood of Christ and saved from the wrath of God through him. That's what Jesus' death did. But the king took the punishment of the rebels in the kingdom. He took the punishment. He took their licking, you could say. He's also a king who owns it all. The second thing in your notes is a king who owns it all, including some dude's donkey. That's a big part of the story, right? Jesus goes and gets someone's donkey. And I think part of the lesson there is that he can take it because he truly owns it. It's like a king uh, requisitioning this or that from someone in his kingdom because it's for the greater good of the kingdom. Jesus has the disciples tell the owner of this donkey that they're taking it. This guy will get his donkey back according to Mark's account, Mark 11. So it's not stealing, but it is rather kingly. It's very kingly. Jesus doesn't say, walk up and see if you can find this guy and then kindly ask if you can take it. He tells them to start taking it and then if someone asks why they're taking it, then you tell them. And here's the reason. The Lord needs it. Not even you need it, or I have a friend who needs it, or just trust me, it's really important. The Lord needs it. That's authority. He's a king whose rule knows no boundaries. It doesn't really matter where this donkey is. Jesus knows where the donkey is, but that's the only part of the location. That's the only part of the story of location that matters. Because Jesus' rule is everywhere. He's a king over all creation. And he knows more than any other earthly king. Don't miss that part of the story. Don't miss that Jesus' omniscience, his all-knowingness is shown to us here. Because he doesn't say, you know, a while back we passed some good-looking donkey. Why don't you run back and get it? In fact, Luke tells us, look at verse 30. Luke tells us that Jesus said, go into the village ahead of you. They haven't yet been to this village. And yet Jesus knows where this specific donkey is. He knows that it's a donkey that no one has sat upon. He knows that there's an owner there who's going to ask such and such. And they're going to respond with such and such. And then the owner is going to let him take it. He's not going to put up a fight. He's not going to say... Give it to you know he's gonna fight over the rope and punch one of the disciples. He's, he's gonna let it go. Jesus knows all that. He knows that. Which, by the way, has some implication for what he knows of us. If he knows where donkeys live and which donkeys to take and which donkeys have been sat upon, then he knows about us. He knows about our sin. He knows about our secrets. He knows what's done in private. He knows what we think no one else knows. You see that in John chapter 1 a little bit where Jesus is starting to call the disciples to himself. And Jesus says to Nathanael, I saw you underneath the fig tree before your brother Philip came and told you about me. And that's all Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say what he saw him doing. Maybe he was doing something bad. 
I saw you smoking underneath that fig tree. I don't know. I'm sure he didn't say that. But something like that maybe. You know, maybe that's the implication. Maybe something only Philip knows. At least he thinks he is the only one that knows. And then Jesus says, I saw you. I wasn't there, but I saw you. I can see. I I know. Or like in Luke 11 where it says that Jesus knew their thoughts, knew his enemy's thoughts, not heard their whispers. He knew their thoughts. Boy, this is a scary king, isn't it? No king knows your thoughts. No king knows where all the donkeys are at all the time. He owns it all. He knows it all. And, and yet, part of, the, part of the picture here, I think, is, is that Jesus' poverty and humility is communicated in the fact that he has to borrow a donkey. He doesn't have a donkey. On the one hand, he owns that donkey. He knows about that donkey. And yet, on the other hand, he has to go get someone else's donkey. It shows us something of Jesus' poverty and his humility. He doesn't own one. He's homeless. He's broke. He's not a king with a big barn and many animals in it and a big crew to take care of these animals and to keep them pretty and fed and well-groomed. He has to borrow someone else's donkey for his own kingly coronation. He owns it all, and yet he owns nothing. That's our king. Thirdly, he's a king of humility and peace. As Jesus enters the city in this little parade, it's no doubt a kingly coronation. That's clear to anyone who knows much of the biblical culture. This is a a kingly coronation, the start of his kingdom and kingdom reign. Or maybe a picture of, you know, coming back from war. Kings would often have sort of celebratory parades if they won. But the key to the humility and peace in this parade, this kingly coronation, is the donkey. He's not on a steed, which symbolized strength. A donkey symbolized weakness. We call them jackasses, right? We also call them beasts of burdens because they're servant-like animals. They serve, they, they do the hard work. And who rides them? Servants ride them. I mean, they're kind of a two-fold servant-like animal. They are servants, and they, they serve servants. Jesus said in Mark 10 that he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Interesting that he doesn't pick a regal, powerful, large horse Like he'll do in Revelation 19, it says, when he comes again, he'll come on a white horse, a war horse. But not yet. Not yet. He must first come in humility, in poverty, on a borrowed donkey. Meekness, servantry, peace, gentleness. And so we call this the triumphal entry, but let's just note, so far anyway, this is not very triumphal at all. One commentator called it the A-triumphal entry, or A-triumphal entry, the negating of triumphal entry. It's not the triumphal entry. It's an entry that isn't triumphant. What king is like this king? What king chooses lowliness? What king is glorified in servantry? What king reveals his reign in terms of its meekness and gentleness and peace and and poverty? 
There is no God who serves like our God. God made that clear through the prophet Isaiah many times. He, he compared himself to the idols, whether it's literal idols in their day or the figurative idols in our own life, anything we worship or trust or love or pursue. There in Isaiah, God said, idols don't serve you, you serve them. You have to clean them. You have to care for them. If you drop it, you'll have to fix them. You have to carry them along. You have to put them on your, on your mule. It weighs down your mule. It doesn't do anything for you. You do things for it, but not the God of the Bible. Yahweh God is the God who's glorified to serve, to care, to be near to the brokenhearted, to be strength to those who are faint-hearted. He's looking for ways to show himself mighty in those whose hearts are his. There's no God like that. Fourth, he's a king of miracles. That's a big part of their praise. Verse 37, Luke 19, verse 37, you see that they're praising God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. What miracles? Well, they'd just been, Jesus and the disciples had just been in Bethany, which is where Lazarus was raised from the dead a couple years before. Now Jesus is staying with Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. And no doubt word is spreading. Word is spreading fast. Word spread fast in those days. I know they didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Face Space or whatever it's called, Facebook. I don't have an account, don't. Don't bother sending me anything. I don't know about that. But, but you communicate information pretty quickly today, right? You tweet things, and, and it's out there, and it's out there to the whole world. And yes, of course, that's unique. They didn't have that. But the way things spread in a very verbal culture, in a very small place, I mean, you look at that section of where all this stuff's happening on a map, it's not a very big place. And a lot of these folks are Jewish, right? We're Samaritans, but either way, they're interested in the coming of the Messiah. So there's been a lot of talk about this Jesus and what he's done. And can you imagine being in Lazarus' hometown? You've heard the stories for a couple of years now. You saw people, talked to people who had eyewitness testimony of seeing Lazarus dead and cold and stinketh and yet then alive. Because Jesus showed up and said, wake up. And now Jesus is here and you want to see him. The crowd around Jesus is getting itself somewhat into a frenzy. And a big part of the growing frenzy about Jesus' miracles is not just that he does miracles or that some have been helped by the miracles, but it's what the, the, the miracles signify. I think there's a connection here that this, the miracles mean Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one. And there's no king like this. There's no king who can overturn sickness. There's no king who can, who can cast out demons, even if he can cast out a foreign army. There is no, no king who can bring back to life. He might be able to throw the biggest funeral ever, and he can't bring back to life. Our king can. Which means this fifth thing here, he's a king of fulfillment. Verse 38 describes their praise, quotes it, They're quoting from Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
They're saying Jesus is that long-awaited for king. They're saying he's the one. They're connecting it to the miracles, just like Jesus himself did when John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus and said, are you the one or should we wait for another one? And Jesus says, go back to John and tell him this. The dead are raised. The lame walk. The lepers are healed. Those in captivity are set free. Go and tell John that I'm doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. I'm him. It's a king of fulfillment. There are at least two other references to future kings and God's plan coming in on a donkey. More fulfilled prophecy is this donkey thing. Back in Genesis 49, listen to this. You read of the king that's to come. Judah is a lion's whelp. He couches, he lies down as a lion. As a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And then he washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. I think those last two phrases have to do with war. I think it's showing, like Revelation 19 describes Jesus, that he's dipped, as it were, in the blood of his enemies. He's blood-soaked, not with his own blood, but with others, because he's a warrior. Now, notice Genesis 49 saying, the king is coming, and he's going to be like a lion, and he won't drop the scepter, and he will be covered in the blood of his enemies. It'll be like he's dipped in wine. And he'll have a donkey. Any of those stand out? One of these things is not like the other? He has a donkey? You said he's going to be a lion. You said he he won't drop his scepter. It'll never fail. He'll always rule. His enemies will be spilled in blood on his garments. He'll be victorious. He'll be mighty. He'll have his way. And he'll ride on a donkey. Well, that's strange. It's strange like it is in Zechariah 9, where we get this whole concept, I think. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, why that's significant is because the verses before this in Zechariah 9 were prophecy about judgment to come. Judgment's coming. And a king is coming, and you're going to shout for joy for this king who's coming. He's going to come in judgment. He's going to come, though, also with salvation and humble and on a donkey. You see those two things? Intention there together. You see the wonderful weirdness of that description where it looks like he's going to be regal and powerful and mighty and glorious, majestic, and yet humble and meek. A servant. There's one more, Zechariah 14. In Luke 19, verse 28, there's a geographic reference to Mount of Olives, that Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives. And, and every now and then, sometimes it's just you know, descriptive, 
It's just Luke or one of the gospel writers telling us about the place. They happen to be there, so you can chart it if you want. A lot of times it's significant, though. And here's a place where I think it's significant, because Mount of Olives in Luke 19, 28 might be an allusion to Zechariah 14, 4. The Lord will go forth and he'll fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and he'll face Jerusalem. He'll stand on the Mount of Olives just like Jesus was doing. And no doubt the people around, if they're familiar with this prophecy, they're saying, look, he's on the Mount of Olives. He's coming on a donkey. This is our king. This is the long-anticipated one. This is the one we've been waiting for. But isn't it interesting that Zechariah 14, like Zechariah 9, has war as part of the picture. He'll go forth and fight against those nations. So all these themes, a king, majestic, ruling, powerfully, warring, yet salvation, humility, a donkey. The point is this. You get that wrong how these things work together, and you get Jesus wrong. You see, those who were praising Jesus in Luke 19, shouting Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. He's here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had it so right and so wrong. Here's the so right part. He is the Messiah. He is the king. He was coming. He is fulfilling prophecy. Just like it says in Zechariah 9, Genesis 49, he's coming on a donkey. And yet, they got it so wrong because they see Jesus coming primarily to bring judgment to Rome and to conquer the bad guys. They confuse what we could say is the first coming with the second coming. They think that all this has to be done at once. And they don't realize that the humble stuff, the sacrifice stuff, the donkey part is coming first. They haven't yet heard or haven't yet understood what Jesus said in Luke 5. Remember that's a a thesis statement for Luke's gospel account, kind of a summary of all Jesus' teaching. In verse 31, Jesus says, it's not those who are well who need a physician, it's those who are sick. So he came for the sick, not for those who are well. He came for those who know themselves to be sinners, not those who think themselves to be righteous. You see, the problem with those praising Jesus on a Monday and yelling, crucify him on a Friday is that they think their basic problem is outside of them. They think their basic problem is governmental, national, military. They think the biggest problem is outside of themselves. Yes, Jesus is putting the world aright, but not yet fully on a societal level, not yet on a cultural level. It has to start with individuals. It has to start with those who know their most desperate need is not Rome to go away, not tyranny to be removed, but for their hearts to be fixed and their sin curse to be taken by a sacrifice. They don't see that this king will come two different times and his kingdom will come in two different comings. Let's move on to the sixth point, though. More could be said about that, but 
Let's see that Christ is a king to be universally praised. Their praise in verse 37 and in verse 38 is, is loud, it's exuberant, it's biblical. They quote Bible. And we've already said they got it right and they got it wrong. Yes, they got it wrong. Yes, their worship is superficial and selective. And soon they'll turn from hosannas to crucify him. But, but their praise is partly right. And where it's right, the Pharisees are nervous. You see in verse 39, the concern of the Pharisees is that this is blasphemous for Jesus to accept this kind of praise. We talked about that last week, that the servants of God never take praise from another servant of God. And so where someone bows before an angel in Revelation, the angel says, get up, get up, I'm not one to bow to, I'm one who does bowing, I'm not him. But Jesus never refuses praise. People bow to him and he doesn't say, get up, don't do that, I'm not God. He is God. And these Pharisees are concerned that people around Jesus are saying, you're the Messiah, you're the one, you've done great things. Surely, Jesus, you should tell them, dial it down a bit. I might be great, but I'm not that great. And Jesus actually ratchets it up. Instead of dialing it down, he ratchets it up. The concern of the Pharisees, I think, is primarily that Jesus isn't the Messiah, but these people are clearly calling him the Messiah. Jesus says, not only am I the Messiah, but look at verse 40. Rocks would praise me if I said so. They didn't do it. If the people didn't do it, rocks would praise me. What's he saying? He's saying he's not just the king of Israel, he's the king of rocks. He's the king of creation. He's saying this. He's referring to these Old Testament verses, a few of them, that talk about the last days in terms of mountain singing and trees clapping hands. Psalm 96. All the trees then will sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. Isaiah 55, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. I think Jesus saying rocks would cry out. He's saying something similar here. He's trying to get the Pharisees and all those listening to hear that Jesus is saying, that age is now dawning. That age where heaven and earth are becoming one, where the groan, Romans 8 talks about earth groaning under this curse and waiting, longing for the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus at the end of the age. It, it's, it's now starting to come. The groan is starting to get fixed in a sense. It's starting to. And Jesus says, if they didn't praise me and recognize this, if I willed it, rocks would recognize it. Rocks would praise me. They would turn their groans into songs. So Jesus' reply to these Pharisees is so, so succinct and yet so perfect. He says, he's the Messiah. The long-awaited time has come. I'm not only the Messiah, though, I'm God. And it's not only right for them, those disciples, to praise me. It's right for rocks to praise me. And I have come as God down to earth to usher in an age where heaven begins to kiss earth. Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He is God. 
come down, and he is to be universally praised. And he is not shy about this. You see how in your face this whole scene is? Jesus essentially says, crown me or crucify me. I am who I am. He's not being secretive about it. He's not being silent about it. He's very public about this whole thing, who he is. He was at a time there quiet about some of these things. Not anymore. Sometimes he would say, be healed, but don't go and tell anyone yet. He had a time when it was supposed to blow up. And now's the time. It's coming. And so now he says to us, crown me or crucify me. But either way, I will be king. And the last thing in your notes is this, that Jesus is a king of lament and he's a king of judgment. In verse 41, he comes up over a hill, it seems like, and as his eyes land on Jerusalem, it says he wept. Literally, it's he burst into tears. You got a spot in your theology for Jesus bursting into tears? He burst into tears. He knows what prophecy he's fulfilling. He knows what he's announcing by coming in on a donkey. He knows what he's communicating. He then clarifies for the Pharisees that this is the coming of a new dawn, a new day. And if people didn't praise him, rocks would praise him. And then he sees the temple and he cries. He laments. And then he announces their judgment. He He again says that the temple will be destroyed. No rock will be left on top of another, he says. Just like he said back in chapter 17. We saw that last week. Now we're seeing it here. Chapter 19, verse 44. What he's saying is that judgment, in fact, was coming. Not to the Romans, but to God's people. To the religious leaders, to the temple itself. Because the old must be destroyed so that the new must be born. And here's the horrible irony of these Pharisees and other religious leaders and any disciple who would shout Hosanna one day and crucify the next. The horrible irony is that they think they're losing out by having a Savior who just dies for sins. They think they're missing out by having a Savior who doesn't fix the problem with the Romans. What makes for peace? Verse 42, Jesus says, If you'd known the stuff that makes for peace, which raises the question, okay, what does make peace? Well, not the temple, that's going to be destroyed. Not a military conquest. Not throwing off Roman oppression. The Romans aren't the problem if you're still dead in your sins. It's not even a unifying of the masses around some great cause or around some great guy. That's not what brings peace. The Apostle Paul told us what brings peace. Jesus. Listen to these words, Ephesians 2, where Christ is our peace. And he abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He abolished the certificate of debt against us of all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our moments of rebellion, all of our times of 
disinterested in him. He abolished that and brought peace. Or like it's put in Colossians 1, Christ had the full deity in him. And through him, he reconciled all things to himself. He was our peace. He brought peace through the blood of his cross. He died to bring us to God. Well, good's a temple. It's just religious action. Just going through the motions. If it's just merely external, if there's no meeting with the triune God in intimacy, what good are sacrifices if they happen year in, year out? So those two themes in Luke 19 now come together so clearly where on the one hand, Jesus is triumphant. He's the king who makes announcement, who does a coronation parade right into Jerusalem. And a lot of the people get it. They sing. They say that he's the one, that this is God who's come. And yet, don't forget how Luke began it. He's going to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's where kings go, but Jerusalem's where prophets are stoned. He's going there to die. He's the king, and the king will lay down his life as a servant. He'll give his life a ransom for many. Let me close with some thoughts for introspection, some questions to ask you. Bow with me, if you would, just so you're be less distracted. What's your response to this Jesus? Maybe you'd rather have a king of your own making, a savior of your own making. Are you going along with Jesus like those in the crowd just because everyone else is? Or because you think he's done some neat things? Because he is God. Are you going along with Jesus just as long as he seems to be doing what you want? Maybe just as long as he's predictable. This God is not predictable. He doesn't change his plan, but sometimes he takes us off guard with what he planned all along. Would you rather have a king who's more into physical, practical help? Who fixes your problems today with that jerk you work with or that wife you live with or these kids you're trying to raise or the budget you're trying to manage? Are you okay with the Jesus who says, don't worry, The end is coming. This isn't it. You're okay with a Jesus who dies in your place and tells you that the most important thing is not your income. It's not your happiness. It's your eternal happiness in being saved and being brought to a God like this? Are you okay with a God who smashes your idols? Are you okay with Jesus saying, you know that thing you love? 
not one piece of it will be left on another. So easy, I think, for us to be critical of the Pharisees because we don't have their worries. And so we're not concerned about Rome. And so we don't want Jesus to be the kind of savior and king that they wanted Jesus to be. But maybe you're just as guilty of making Jesus into your own image. We have a king who's willing to be ridiculed, spit upon, suffering, and dying in our place. And if you believe that, then then be saved and know that you're saved and obey him like the disciples did sometimes with a weird request, not understanding where a donkey will be and how it will be fulfilled, but heading out. Praising him like those here in the crowd, but not doing it in a fickle way. Purposing to praise him, whether he rides in victoriously or it looks like he just got nailed. Trust him. He's not done. He's not done with your plan. He's not done with your life. If you can see that Jesus is a God of fulfillment and surprises here in this passage, then you shouldn't be surprised. In fact, you should be encouraged that he is a God of fulfillment and surprises in your own life, even today. But he's good. He's the king.